You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Good to see you today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box and I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown Church. So glad that you uh, took time to join us and invite your family or wh- whatever has brought you here today. We're really glad that you're here. Um, so, I think that it's safe to say, from my observation, from just reputation of, of life, um, I think all of us probably have, let me try to put this uh, nice, uh, as nice as possible, all of us probably have a um, very uh, interest, interesting, can I say interesting, at least one very interesting character in our extended family. Is that, is that true? At, at least one. It, um, chances are you're probably going to go spend time with them this week, or they're coming to spend time with you, or, or they are coming to spend time with you, perhaps, if there's a bunch of them in your family. Um, we, we all seem to have uh, some interesting uh, people in our family, and they, you know, you love them, right? I mean, you love them, but maybe it's okay that you only see them once or twice a year, too, if you're going to be, if you're going to be honest. Well, um, this series we've been in, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been this series of Thrill of Hope, and what we've been doing is we've been walking through the genealogy of Jesus that Matthew actually begins his gospel account, his, his, his eyewitness account of Jesus' life. He begins it with a genealogy, and we talked about how that's really not a great hook. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. It's like, yeah, no one likes reading genealogies, but it, in Matthew's case, he starts with this genealogy, and what we find as we read through it is that uh, Jesus himself had some uh, interesting characters in his family tree, in his family line. And, and really, when I say interesting, for him, I really also could just say scandalous or uh, off-putting characters in his family tree, right? I mean, we've seen that the last couple of weeks. And what's interesting is that Matthew, when he's writing out Jesus' genealogy, he doesn't try to blow past those people. He certainly doesn't leave them, leave them out altogether. Instead, what he does is that he draws attention to them. And that's intriguing. You think, why in the world, Matthew, would you draw attention to the people that are really rather scandalous in Jesus' family line? Why begin your book that way? And what we've seen and what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks is that the reason that Matthew did that is because he understood, I think, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He understood that these people, these scandalous people in Jesus' line, they, they're included because they actually help capture or illustrate the point of the story, the point of why Jesus came. See, because Matthew understood this. Matthew knew that the reason Jesus had come was to make it possible for us to approach God based not on what we do for God, but what God has done for us. And Matthew knew that that belief, the belief that God accepts us and loves us because of what he's done for us, not as a result of what we do for him. He knew that that belief is really, really hard to latch onto. Because there's something in us. I mean, just be honest, right? There's something in all of us that just seems to say, that seems to argue with ourselves and really argue with God that says, no, 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 God, I, I, I've got to do something. 
I've got to bring something to the table. I've, I've got to do something. I've got to stop doing this. I've got to start doing this. I've got to obey in some kind of way. I've got to prove something. I've got to earn it somehow. I've got to bring something to the table. Matthew knew that that was inside of all of us. It was inside of him. And so he comes to these people in Jesus' line. And he says, no, no, I'm going to draw attention to these people. Because these people capture the fact that God accepts us, he loves us, he blesses us, he includes us. Not based on what we do for him, but based on what he has done for us. If it was based on what we do for him, these people would not have been included in the family line of Jesus. They would not have been blessed by God in this way, would not have been accepted by God in this way. But he did accept them, he did bless them, he did love them in that way. Why? God is a God of great grace because God loves us, blesses us, and accepts us, forgives us, and brings us peace within, with him, not based on what we do for him, but what he has done for us. And so that's what he's drawing out here. And the person we're going to talk about today is probably the person, if I can say this, I don't know if this is fair, but it's probably the person who needed God's grace and love and forgiveness and mercy more than anyone else in this whole family line. Uh, I mean, we all need it, but this person really stands. When you hear his story, you're going to be like, yeah, I understand why you say that, because he, he, really, he, he really needed God's grace. He certainly did not deserve for God to include him in the line of Jesus, especially to include him to the, to, to, to the degree that God includes him. See, the person I'm going to talk about today is King David. King David. Now, what's interesting is that Matthew understood that his original audience that he's writing to was a, a very religious, uh, first-century Jewish audience. That was who he was really writing his gospel to, to at that time. And he understood that in the eyes of his original audience, perhaps no one in the line of G Jesus, the Jesus family tree in the genealogy, no one in their eyes actually deserved to be in that line more than David. See, because David was thought of as the great king of Israel, right? He was the giant killer. He was the psalmist. He was the king. He's, I mean, he's like the guy. And so if anyone's like, man, Jesus, I mean, David deserves to have been included with Jesus. They would think it, it's David. In fact, interestingly, uh, Matthew begins his gospel account this way. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very First line in the whole book, it says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of, you think son of God? No, no, son of David. Like David's name is most clearly associated with the Messiah. It's the most closely associated with the Messiah. And people would read that and think, yeah, that's right. I mean, man, because David was awesome. But Matthew, knowing that, man, that might be how people think. Yeah, David's included because he deserved to be included. When Matthew gets to David's name in the genealogy, he does something that would have really rubbed his first century Jewish audience in the wrong way. That would have really bothered them. Because when he gets to David's name, he actually drags up the biggest failure, the biggest point of sin, the biggest point of shame in all of David's life. I think he does that to show yeah, it's because David also needed God's grace and actually didn't deserve to be accepted by God. But because God doesn't treat us as we deserve, but in light of what he's done for us. Here he is. 
So here's what Matthew does. Matthew chapter 1, let me begin with verse 2 and just read through the genealogy and just kind of see the flow here. All right, so he begins, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. We talked about them. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, his mother was Tamar, and we talked about her. Uh, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and we talked about her. And Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of, and here's our guy, King David. And David was the father of Solomon. And he could have just said, just, and Solomon was the father of, who was the father of. But instead, he writes this. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Who had been Uriah's wife. Now, why in the world would Matthew add that juicy line, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, hmm, okay, well, that's, there's something to that, that statement. I mean, in all the things that Matthew could have said about David, I mean, there's tons of really good things that he could have said about what a great guy David was. Instead, he, he says, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And see, by as I said, by adding that line, he services the, David's biggest failure and shame. Now, why draw attention to that? Well, I think it's because Matthew realized that that line helps capture uh, the point of why Jesus had come. For this statement reminds his audience that David was a sinner. That David, who was a, if not the key character in all of Israel, the great king, it reminds them that he, uh, he was, uh, in every sense of the word, word uh, a failure. Failure as a leader, failure as a friend, failure as a husband, and failure as a father. And that he did not deserve to be accepted or loved by or blessed by God. He didn't deserve to be so closely associated with the Messiah, but... He was. And the reason why he was is because God is a gracious God who does not treat us as we deserve. And so I think Matthew drags all this up in order to drive that message home, that God does not treat us as we deserve. Now, that's incredibly good news. But I, I think that it, it just is such good news that perhaps it's hard for it to penetrate a heart. I mean, I've heard this news all my life, and yet it's so uh, common for me that I think even in a relationship with God, that uh, God's uh, willingness to hear from me, his love for me, is really still dependent on what I do for him. And when I mess up, when I sin, when I, man, I'm, rude to Krista, my wife, or I don't treat my kids with patience or kindness. Man, I'm not quick to run to God. I feel like i got to do something to make up for what I've done in order to get him to want to hear from me, to want to be with me. I, say, I, got, I think i got to do something. But here's the thing. God does not actually treat us according to what we've done, but according to what he's done for us. Man, David's story really captures that. So let me just tell you his story, okay? Uh, um, 
We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7, so if you want to go there, uh, you can. And while you're looking that up, um, let me give you a little context. You see, David's story begins in 1 Samuel chapter 16, so a whole book before where I'm pointing you. But uh, it starts in there when uh, God tells a prophet named Samuel to go to a town named Bethlehem to uh, anoint a new king for Israel. And so uh, this is pretty interesting, about a thousand years before Jesus was to be born in Bethlehem, uh, God sends Samuel to go anoint a new, and here this actually turns out to be a new uh, child king, a new child king from Bethlehem. Now, that's, that's intriguing, isn't it? And uh, long story short, Samuel ends up uh, anointing David, son of Jesse, as the child king for Israel, but at that time, David is a child. And so uh, he doesn't become the king right away. He goes about still being just a kid, and he's a shepherd for his family for a little while, and then eventually he grows up, and through a kind of a wild set of events, (laughs) too much to get into, he does eventually become the second king of Israel. And one day, um, when David is in his great palace, he's the king now, one day he's in his great palace, he, he looks out from there and, and he sees the tabernacle. He sees the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, for those who don't know, is this uh, giant kind of tent, this elaborate tent that uh, was really served to be the, 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 the focal point of worship for Israel. This is the place where God's present presence amongst Israel dwelt in a unique way, and they understood that God was bigger than this being in this tent. But this is where, you know, the tabernacle, it housed the, the Ark of the Covenant and the, the Ten Commandments. And, like, this was this super, um, you know, really uh, holy place that really represented God's presence with the people of Israel. And David looks out, and he sees this tent, and he's looking at his palace, and he says, man, it's not right that I dwell in this incredible palace, this incredible house, and God is in a tent. So I'm going to build a house for God. I'm going to build a temple for God. And so David gets to working, and he starts raising money, and he starts putting the blueprint together to build this temple. And then God sends another prophet to David, the prophet Nathan. Nathan comes to David with a message from God, and that's where I want to pick up, 2 Samuel Chapter 7, verse 8, it says this. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. Verse 9. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. Okay, now, um, this is pretty remarkable because, again, this was written about 3,000 years ago. About 1,000 years before Jesus, and then 2,000 years since Jesus, about 3,000 years ago. And, and now, in light of that, let me ask you a question. Um, before you came here this morning, how many of y'all have actually heard of King David before? Go ahead, just raise your hand. Heard his name before. Okay. Now, um, that's almost all of us. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? I mean, here God makes a promise to David that he's going to make his name great. And now people, 3,000 years later, all over the world, different languages, they all know the name of King David. That seems like uh, God kept that promise, didn't he? It seems like that was uh, either a r- ridiculous coincidence or maybe there's something to this, huh? Uh, 
just wanted to point that out. I don't know if sarcasm goes over real well from, from here, but uh, that's, that's just, maybe you should just chew on that. But anyways, we all know David. Uh, and then after that, uh, Nathan keeps going, speaking for God. And he says this to David. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to, to succeed you in your own flesh and blood. And I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so here, basically what God says, and this is rather interesting. God says, okay, I know you want to build a house for me, David. But I'm not going to let you build a house for me. I'm going to let your son build a house for me. And that's what happens. His son Solomon actually is the one who builds the temple for God. But God says, okay, I don't want you, I'm not, I'm not let you build the house for me, but here's my promise to you, David. I'm going to build your house. I'm going to promise to build your name, your house, your lineage, your throne, and it's going to be forever. In fact, he goes on. He says, the Lord declares to you, uh, no, I'm sorry, verse 14 says, I will be his father, and he will be my son, talking about David's son. Now, what comes next is pretty important because it's going to give us a little bit of insight into how uh, things work with God's punishment and God's love and kind of the dilemma between God's judgment and God's love. Here's what God tells David through Nathan. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Meaning that, okay, when, when you or the people that come after you, David, when they rebel against me or, or disobey me, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punish. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to turn a blind eye to that. But then he says this, but my love will, what's that word? Never. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from uh, before you. And Saul was the first king of Israel. Your house, here's the promise, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Okay, now, this is a really, this is a really big deal. In fact, this, this passage right here is known as the Davidic covenant. So this is where God makes this covenant or this promise with David. And what he promises is this. Even though he says, you can't build the temple, David, here's my promise to you. Your name, your family line, and your throne will be established forever. And that's a promise. In fact, it's not just a promise. It's an unconditional promise. An unconditional promise. God is saying, this is what I'm going to do for you, and it doesn't have anything to do with what you do for me. In fact, David wanted to build a temple for God, and he said, I'm not even going to let you do something for me in that sense. But here is what I'm going to do for you. And then, after all this, four chapters later, same book, 2 Samuel now, that was chapter 7, and chapter 11, David begins to test to see how unconditional God's unconditional promise was to him. You would think when God says this to David, David would respond with this sense of, God, I can't believe you want to bless me. I can't believe you're going to be so gracious and merciful to me. I, man, I, like that you would show me this much love, that you would promise me this, that I'm going to live for you. I'm going to just do everything for you. But that's not what happens. Second Samuel chapter 11. Um, 
tells us a story that we're probably all familiar with this, to, uh, some, some uh, respect or another. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. Here's how the story goes. I'm just going to kind of summarize it, but if you want to follow along, again, 2 Samuel chapter 11. The story goes that one day Jesus is, oh, not Jesus, <laughs> David, is on the uh, uh, roof of his palace, and he looks down, and he sees a beautiful woman that's bathing. And he calls one of his servants over, and he says, hey, who's that? He says, oh, that, that is uh, Bathsheba. That's Uriah, your general, uh, general in the army. That, that's your general's wife, Uriah. He says, oh, okay. Well, David knows that Uriah is off fighting a battle for him. And so he sends some messengers to go and get Bathsheba. And when Bathsheba comes before David, we're told that David slept with her. And um, let me just let you know, there's some debate here on whether uh, when David slept with Bathsheba, whether it was actually consensual or not. We don't know the details in Scripture. Don't make it super clear one way or the other. But we do know that um, people didn't usually say no to a king. And so either this was uh, wrong, like really wrong, or this was really, really, really horribly wrong. Either way, it was really, really bad. But then it gets worse. Because uh, after sleeping with Bathsheba, few weeks pass, and then Bathsheba sends word to David that she's pregnant with his child. Now David's stuck trying to figure out how to cover up for what he's done. And so he sends a message that gets Uriah sent from the battlefield back to the palace. When Uriah shows up, David says, you know, had made up some reason for him to be back. And then he says, okay, why don't you go home, and then the next day I'll send you back out to the battlefield hoping that Uriah would go home and sleep with his wife, and then maybe that would cover over what he had done. But Uriah uh, doesn't go home. He ends up sleeping by the palace door, and David finds out about that. So the next day, he calls Uriah again and says, hey, why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, hey, how could I go home and enjoy the comforts of home and be with my wife when my men are on the battlefield dying? And David said, okay, well, I'm not going to send you back to the battlefield yet. I want you to stay one more night. And then that night... Uh, David has a party, and he, he gets Uriah nice and drunk, thinking that if he could get him drunk enough, then he would definitely go home and perhaps sleep with his wife. But Uriah, uh, even when he was drunk, does not go home, and he again sleeps in the palace. And, and David uh, finds that out. Uh, he's upset. Now, at this point in the time, um, you would think God would just go ahead and make Uriah the king. Right? I mean, he's way more righteous than David, way more deserving than David. But God had made an unconditional promise to David. David is not done testing how unconditional the unconditional promise is. And so after hearing that Uriah still had not gone home, he writes a letter to the um, commander of the army, a guy named Joab. And David writes to Joab saying, hey, when Uriah shows up, what I want you to do in the next battle is that, that I, want, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines. And then um, I want you to draw all your men back and leave him exposed to the enemy's attacks. Joab would have understood that this was a death sentence for Uriah. And so then David seals this message to Joab 
and he gives it to Uriah to unwittingly deliver to Joab to deliver his own death sentence. I mean, how, how low can you go? So Uriah does. He drops his letter off to Joab as it goes, he goes back to the battlefield. Joab follows the commands of the king. In the next battle, he puts Uriah on the front lines. He draws back. And Uriah, along with some of his other men, are killed. And word gets back to David and to Bathsheba that Uriah has died. And Bathsheba mourns. She goes into a time of mourning for her husband. But eventually, David marries Bathsheba. And at that point, David thinks that... Uh, all of the horrible stuff that he's done has been covered up. He thinks he's gotten away with it. He thinks that, you know, no one's going to know. But Scripture tells us that God knew. In fact, all of what I just told you is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. You should read your Bibles. It's pretty interesting stuff in there. And the last verse of chapter 11 ends with this statement. It says, Um, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You think, okay, maybe that's an understatement. But we do know that that's how it ends. The thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. And so now God had a decision to make. If God makes decisions like this, if use, I'll use human terms here. But God had a, a decision to make. And his decision is this. Okay, do, do I keep my promise that I made to David? Or do I go a different direction? Or do I, do I break that promise or go back on my word? Because, man, look at what all of the horrible, horrific, evil things that David has done. So in 1 Samuel, I mean 2 Samuel chapter 12, story picks up. And then again, what we see is that God sends his prophet Nathan to confront David. And this time Nathan shows up and he says to David, Hey, all this stuff that you think you've gotten away with, all this stuff you think no one knows about, God knows. He knows in detail, and he just lays out for David everything that he's done, and David realizes he hasn't gotten away with it. And David responds with repentance. He cries out for God's forgiveness. He owns what he's done. He doesn't try to make excuses for it. He doesn't try to cover it up. He owns it. And he responds with real contrition. He, uh, actually, you can read it for yourself. Psalm chapter 51 is the psalm that David wrote in response to owning his sin. Now, he doesn't say, hey, I just messed up, or it was just a mistake, or it was a bad day. He says, no, no, I've sinned against you, God. But even then, just to own it, you think, okay, well, how's God going to respond to that? And amazingly, because this is truly amazing. God forgives him. And God is a God of great grace. And God forgives David. And yet, God is also a good father. And as he had promised David, when, when you people go their own way as a good father, I'm not going to just act like that's not a big deal. I'm going to punish. I'm going to discipline. And so God disciplines David, and it's severe. And the child that Bathsheba was pregnant with from David dies. And uh, 
David's uh, family begins to just completely uh, fall apart. Uh, his sons went to war with each other. His favorite son murders his oldest son. His favorite general, Joab, murders his favorite son. David was run out of Jerusalem for a while by one of his sons, and his family was split, and the kingdom was divided for a time. I mean, it was really, really bad. But through it all, God never withdrew his promise to David. Because even though God's punishment was strong, his decision was firm, and his promise was unconditional and eternal. He had said, I will make your name great, and your family line and your throne will be established forever. And so David and Bathsheba end up having another son, and they name him Solomon. And Solomon becomes king, and he builds the temple, and then he has a son, and then he has a son. And, and then fast forward 990 years later. 990 years later, with all of that as a back, backdrop, and in spite of all that David had done, a man in the line of David named Joseph with his pregnant wife named Mary made their way to the town of Bethlehem, which by the first century was known as the town of David. And there Mary would give birth to the great, 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 great grandson of King David. And this baby was the Messiah, which literally means the anointed one or the anointed king. And so this child king, born in Bethlehem, would come from the line of David to rule forever. And you know why, friends? It's because God keeps his promises no matter what. That's why. God keeps his promises no matter what. And I, think, I think that this is why when Matthew got to David's name and Jesus' genealogy, he dragged all of this up. Because I think he realized that David's life powerfully captures the point, the reason for why Jesus had come. For Jesus had come because God does not relate to us according to what we have done for him, and he does not relate to us according to what we deserve. But instead, he relates to us according to his grace and his mercy, giving us his love and acceptance and blessing that we do not deserve. And I think Matthew drags all this up because he understood that when Jesus came, he came to make it possible for God to forgive us and give us the grace and mercy and forgiveness that we don't deserve. And when God did that, God was also making us a brand new, hear this, a brand new promise. And like the promise God made to David, it would be an unconditional promise, not dependent on what we do for God, but what he would do for us. But unlike the promise that God had made to David, this new promise wouldn't be made to only one person or one family line, but it would be made to all the people. This, uh, I think Matthew knew that this promise would be so amazing that it would, it, we would wonder if we could actually believe it. It would seem so one-sided 
It would, it would seem so tilted towards in our favor that we would think, man, I don't know if, that's, if I can really believe that. And so before Matthew laid out what God's new promise was, first, I think he wanted us to remember through David's story that God's a God who keeps his promises no matter what. So what was God's new unconditional promise that he made? Well, the angel, when announcing Jesus' birth, put it this way in the book of Luke. Now, I know many of y'all have heard this a million times, but please try to hear this again through the ears, through the context of what we've just talked about. Luke chapter 2, verse 10 says this, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And friends, hear this. You're a part of all the people. That this wasn't just all of the first century Jewish people. This is for all of the people. This is not just for the good people. This is for the bad people and the in-between people. This is for all of the people. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Here it is. Today in the town of David. Today in the town of David. And here's my prayer for you. My prayer is that every time from this point on, that you, on Christmas uh, season, you hear that, that line, the town of David. You hear it in a play, you hear it in a song, you watch, hear it from Charlie Brown's Christmas, from the lips of Linus. Whatever it is, you hear this, the town of David, the town of David. You will remember, friends, that God is a God who keeps his promises no matter what. And that that will fill you with hope. Because, see, in the town of David, David the unfaithful, David the promise breaker, David the adulterer, David the murderer, David who uh, ruined his family, David who did not deserve God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. In the town of David, the angel will say, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And then in verse 13, it says, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. And friends, that's the announcement of God's new unconditional promise. Put simply, the promise is this, a Savior has come To bring us peace. A Savior has come to bring us peace. To get real specific, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, who is the Messiah the Lord, who is Jesus, has come to bring us peace with God. To bring us peace with God. For you see, God tells us in his word that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That the wages, meaning the due payment for our sin, is death. Death meaning separation from God. That the due payment, the thing that we deserve for our sin, is separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And friends, that's what's promised to us in Jesus. Because Jesus, our Savior, willingly paid the debt we owed. And he was given the wages of our sin in our place. He said, I'll take that payment. And on the cross, he paid our debt. And he was separated from God. 
forsaken by the Father so that we wouldn't have to be. And he got what we deserve so that we would get what we do not deserve, the grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, acceptance of God, peace with God. And the only thing that we have to do to have that peace with God, to be forgiven and accepted, is to simply receive this gift, to receive what Jesus has done for us. See, the Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, since we have been justified, meaning declared not guilty, through faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, this is God's promise to us, to all the people. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through what God has done for us and not through what we have done for him. For he is a God of great grace, and through faith, through simply believing this is what Jesus has done for you, you are promised peace with God, no matter what. Because God is a promise-keeping God. And look at what he has promised us. Here's just a couple just for you to chew on. Romans 8, chapter 1 says this. I mean, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. Romans 8, verse 39 says this. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that's a promise. Nothing can separate you. Hebrews 13, verse 5 says this. God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. And see, friends, God keeps his, keeps his promises no matter what. And so we can believe these promises. See, if God would keep his promise to David, he'll keep his promise to you. And if God will keep his greatest promise, the promise of his son, a savior born to us to bring us peace, if he'll keep that promise, then man, we can be sure that he's going to keep all of the other promises he's made to us. We can trust him, for God is the great promise keeper. And friends, let that fill you with hope. Throughout this series, we've talked about hope and said hope is not wishful thinking. That's how we use that word hope. But the Bible uses the word hope to speak of something way stronger than that. Biblically speaking, hope is this. It's life-shaping certainty about things unseen. Life-shaping certainty or life-changing certainty. And because God is a promise-keeping God, then we can take his promise and we can fill us with hope, life-shaping hope, to know that this is how God relates to us. This is what God has done for us. These things are promised to us, and they are true and stand firm no matter what. And so, friends, if you're... Christian, if you've placed your faith already in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, here's what I want to encourage you with. You can believe God's promises. And if you find you still wrestle with hiding from God or being bolder in coming before God based on what you have been doing or not doing, 
then I would encourage you to let go of that. See, because God does not treat you according to what you've done or not done, but according to what he has done for you. And you can come boldly before God, not based on your track record or what you've done for the last 20 years or the last 20 minutes, but based on what Jesus has done for you. And friends, let that fill you with hope. Because God has promised that his love and his acceptance is not based on you, but it's based on him. And friends, if you're here today and you're unsure about what you believe about Jesus, and you wouldn't maybe call yourself a Christian or you're not sure, or you would say, for sure, I'm not. (laughs) But you hear this, And you think, man, is this really true? Could this really be true? Here's what I would really encourage you with. See, I I would encourage you to to believe this good news. Because this is good news that can bring you great joy. And it's for you. It's for all the people. It's that you're a part of all the people. And that when Jesus went to the cross, he did that for you. So that you, no matter what you have done, or what you have not done, or what you are doing right now, will not separate you from God. If you, by faith, trust that Jesus died for you. See, through Jesus, God promises you peace with him. And you can have that peace today. Because the way you get that peace, the way that you receive God's acceptance and love and blessing and inclusion into his family is not based on something you do. It's just based on believing that he's done this for you. So I want to give you a chance, even this morning, to tell God that you believe that. So we're going to end by taking communion. And when we take communion, what we're remembering is that on the night... Uh, before Jesus went to the cross, he had a dinner. And during that dinner, he broke bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of, hear this, blood of the covenant, which is uh, the promise. He says, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And friends, it's because Jesus had his body broken and his blood spilled and he died in our place and then he defeated death and defeated sin and rose from the grave. Because of him, we can have forgiveness and we can be promised peace with God. And that promise stands no matter what you've done or what you do. For God keeps his promises no matter what. May that move you to receive his promise and out of joy for how he has treated you, you would choose to live for him. I'm going to give you an opportunity now as we pray to tell God, if you never have, that you want to receive the gift of peace with him through Jesus. You don't have to do this, but I would would really encourage you to make this the moment, if you never have, to tell God you believe that and receive on this day 
the greatest gift, peace with God, not based on what you've done, but based on what God has done for you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, for those that are ready to believe this, God, I pray that you would guide them in these words. Father, I believe that Jesus died in my place for my sins. And that you accept me into your family, not based on what I've done, but based on what Jesus has done for me. And I trust your promise that through Jesus, I now have peace with you. And I am forever accepted into your family. And I am your child. Thank you for Jesus. Father, for the rest of us and for all of us here, God, I just ask that you would move us to worship you now and with our lives in light of what you've done for us. And that, God, you would help us understand that you do not treat us according to what we do, but what you've done. But, Lord, that that truth would penetrate our hearts to the degree that it would move us, compel us to want to live for you, not out of obligation, but out of love. Because look at how you have loved us. And you are an amazing, gracious God, not treating us as we, we deserve. Thank you instead for giving us your mercy and your forgiveness and your acceptance and your love based on what Jesus has done for us. Help us celebrate that now as we take communion and we remember the promise, the new covenant in Christ's blood that you've made to us. And Lord, may it move us to worship because you're a God who keeps promises no matter what. In Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.